As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 319. Leadership is communicating people's worth and potential so clearly that they're inspired to see it in themselves. Hi, and welcome to this special episode, the special edition of the Read to Lead podcast. It's the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. Hi there. My name is Jeff Brown, and I believe that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. The idea behind this podcast is to help you narrow this reading list and bring you key insights and valuable ideas from today's most successful and inspiring authors. And it's difficult to believe that it could get much more inspiring than it is today. That's because we're about to be joined by author Stephen M. R. Covey as we discuss the 30th anniversary edition out today of his father's classic book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I'll ask Stephen to share his thoughts on the questions that you submitted. Questions centered around ideas from the book like begin with the end in mind, think win-win, being proactive versus reactive, and much more. It is humbling and thrilling to me that everyone associated with this project, the 30th anniversary edition of this book, would consider the Read to Lead podcast a must-stop for helping get the word out about this new edition. Well, Stephen M. R. Covey is co-founder of Covey Link and of the Franklin Covey Global Speed of Trust Practice, a sought-after and compelling keynote speaker and advisor on trust, leadership, ethics, and high performance. Stephen speaks to audiences around the world. He is the New York Times and number one Wall Street Journal best-selling author of The Speed of Trust and co-author of the number one Amazon best-selling Smart Trust. He is the former CEO of Covey Leadership Center, which, under his stewardship, became the largest leadership development company in the world. And Stephen, along with Greg Link, led the strategy that propelled his father's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, to become one of the most influential business books of the 20th century, according to CEO Magazine. Stephen currently serves on the board or advisory boards of several entities and is a top thought leaders in trust lifetime achievement honoree from Trust Across America, Trust Around the World. Well, Stephen is here today to discuss the 30th anniversary edition of his late father's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It is my privilege and honor to welcome him to the Read to Lead podcast. I told my wife just moments ago, I need complete quiet because I'm about to conduct the single most important interview of my career. Stephen, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. <laughs> well, thank you, Jeff. I'm really honored, humbled to be here with you today. This will be a lot of fun. Well, as I was preparing for this and thinking about thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people around the globe, the hundreds of thousands, the millions who have been impacted by this work the last 30 years, it occurred to me that I was probably not qualified to ask all the questions, <laughs> that I needed to reach out to my community, uh, those uh, like myself who have been impacted by this book, and, and ask them what they want to make sure that I ask. And Boy, they, they responded in droves via email and on social media. I won't be able to include them all. So if your question isn't asked, I apologize in advance. Uh, and I've combined some of them that were similar, but uh, we'll, we'll get through as many as we can. And we start off with someone who happens to be a former guest on the podcast, the author of a book called View from the Top, Aaron Walker. And he pulls no punches. He wants to know, Stephen, right out of the gate, was it a curse or a blessing growing up in dad's 
uh, shadow, where, where you always referred to as, as Stephen Covey's uh, son. And, and before you answer, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe when the book came out and, and your father kind of was showing up on everybody's radar, you were in college, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? I was just coming out of a, a business school when the book was about to come out. So a, a master's degree, yes. So, so growing up, though, did, did you feel like you were in that shadow? And, and if so, was that a blessing? Was that a curse? Um, I would say this. I definitely was in his shadow because he's such a larger-than-life uh, you know, figure. Um, but it absolutely is a blessing, was mm. a blessing, is a blessing. Because to have been influenced by my father, taught by my father, loved by my father, mm. is a, was an extraordinary thing. And so, yes, you, you know, you, do you sometimes be known as Stephen Covey's son? Yes, but that's not a bad thing. <laughs> that, that, what a what a what a, you know, I look at the flip side. What a what a blessing. Mm. What an opportunity to learn these principles of effectiveness at a young age, to have been taught and to have seen it modeled and also to have had a relationship with my father that really was so profound and, you know, is the greatest influence on my life and, and um and also to feel loved by him. So it was absolutely a blessing. And yes, there's I, I clearly I'm in his shadow. But I don't mind that because I feel a sense of stewardship and a sense of, uh, of legacy that I want to continue and perpetuate. And so – and I made a conscious decision even when I, when I left um, uh, Harvard Business School to you – know, do I go into investment banking where I had an opportunity? Do I go into real estate development where I had an opportunity? I chose to join with my father and then Covey Leadership Center because I knew the seven habits of highly effective people was about to come out. And I really believe that this book was going to impact people and leaders and organizations all around the world. And I wanted to be a part of it. So I kind of chose this. I ran with the blessing, <laughs> seeing it through that lens. And that's how it's been for me in my life. And, and to be clear, you, you didn't start at the top. You, you began there in an entry level position, right? That's correct. Yeah. I wanted to learn the business. I wanted to you know, get in with the with clients and do client work and sales and learn and grow and just develop and kind of build my own credibility. I did feel a need to not just be my father's son. Mm. I wanted to also show that I could work hard, create value and, and, and do things that, that, uh, you know, showed that I had some capability and strength. So I did have a desire for that and not just be seen as my father's son, but I also didn't have any problem being known as my father's son because I felt so strongly about who my father was. I was, I was proud of that. Hmm. As a teenager, though, I have to believe that there were times when he would give you advice and, and your response was something akin to, oh, dad, come on, <laughs> right? At least once, right? <laughs> there, there were times when, when I thought, you know, this is not realistic. And, and so here, here was the, because you know, my dad would never let you be reactive. He never let you blame people. You know, he'd say, I'd say, dad, I got a terrible teacher at school. I'm not going to learn anything. We got to take the same standardized test. And I got the worst teacher. And, you know, he would say, well, that's being reactive. So that means you're responsible for your learning. The teacher's not responsible. So you need to make it happen. You need to do whatever you need to do. And, and I say, gosh, here, I'm going to go talk to mom. Mom won't let me blame and point the finger at the teacher. So, so we kind of had a little bit of a back and forth with my dad, you'd get uh, principles and with my mom, you'd get compassion and, you know, and, and empathy. And, and so we, you know, we had some fun with that, but, but uh, yeah, no, there were times as a teenager where I didn't want the lecture, but the reason it didn't feel like a lecture was that my father modeled what he taught. He believed it. He loved, and you know, he wasn't perfect himself, but he'd always come back to, to the principles. And so maybe, I'd say this, Jeff, the, the kindest thing I could say about my father is that as good as he was as an author and as a teacher, speaker, and he was really good, that was in public. As good as he was in public, he was even better in private. Mm. As a husband to my mother, as a father to his kids, you know, he was who you thought he was. And so that made hearing, you know, his ideas, it didn't come across as a lecture. Rather, it came across as great advice from a loving parent that tended to be more received that way because you just felt the relationship was so strong. Well, the next question I want to ask you, uh, Stephen, comes from from Danielle, whose last name I'm going to leave out for a couple of reasons, uh, one of which is I'm not uh, sure whether or not the question relates to her personally. And the other reason I'm leaving out her last name is because I'm not sure I can pronounce it. So <laughs> the question is this, how might these principles, the seven habits, uh, be applied to help those that maybe struggle with, with things like anxiety and, 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 and depression? 
Well, I think that they can be helpful. And again, I recognize that anxiety and depression is a, is a real challenge for many of us and, and for many people in our society. It's very real. And, and um, aware seven habits can be helpful is in particular, you know, the first three habits, which is kind of what my father called the private victory as we move from dependence to independence and the whole idea of, you know, being proactive. And, and, the, and one key principle in being proactive is the idea of focusing on your circle of influence, not on your circle of concern. Mm. And so, in other words, there's a lot of things out there that we're concerned about, all of us, that matter to us, you know, and it could be that the economy, what's going on in the world today, the weather, my company, my job, et cetera. There's a lot of things that are concerned to me. And then within that, you know, wide, broad circle of concern, there's within that, there's a smaller circle of influence. It's, those are the things that I can do something about, that I can influence. And reactive people tend to focus on all the circle of, of concern things. Proactive people tend to focus on the circle of influence things. When the reactive people focus on the outer circle of concern, what happens is their circle of influence diminishes and grows smaller. When the proactive person focuses on the inner circle of influence, it tends to grow larger. And so I'd say that for someone that struggles with some of these conditions, by focusing on your circle of influence as a form of being proactive, you begin to enlarge and expand that. And the very process of doing that can, in some cases, be helpful to having that person better be able to manage and deal with some of those challenges of anxiety and depression because they feel a little bit greater sense of control and, and, and power as opposed to be sometimes overwhelmed by all the concerns that are out there in the broader circle. So this can be really helpful and practical. And even the research from uh, Martin Seligman, you know, on, on happiness in someone's life, you know, he looks at how genetics plays a role and the circumstances play, plays a role. But also what really plays a role is if you, if you focus on the things that you can control, my father would call that the circle of influence, that that will increase and impact your happiness as much as anything. And so we focus on that and that can help us in the process of managing anxiety and depression. Again, I'm not saying it's a cure-all. I am saying it can be helpful in that process of better navigating that if we feel like I'm focusing on what I can control, what I can influence, as opposed to being overwhelmed by everything around me. Hmm. A couple of uh, listeners to the show, Stephen, uh, Terry Stafford and Peter Dongan, asked a variation of, of the same question dealing with the fact that the habits seem to be completely absent from today's political uh, landscape, uh, <laughs> at least in Terry's words. Uh, ha have you thought about how to revive uh, your dad's framework? Maybe, for example, getting it into the the hands of our local and federal governments? And if so, how can we help in that quest? I think it's a great question because uh, we need this in our society. And I'll tell you in particular where I think this would be helpful in our governments and in our, in our leadership in the world at large is the second half of the seven habits. You know, the first half are habits one, two, and three, the private victory, moving from dependence to independence. The second half is habits four, five, and six, what he called the public victory, and that's moving from independence to interdependence, mm. and that's what's so often lacking where, you know, we're, we're so divided, we're so polarized in our world, and really practicing habits four, five, and six, you know, habits four, think win-win. Too often, people think win-lose, and, <laughs> and um, you know, kind of if, I, if you win, then I lose, and, and, uh, and that there's kind of a, a zero-sum game, a scarcity mentality. And we need an increasing abundance mentality. So, you know, the, your, your listeners are right. We do need more of a win-win mentality, a mindset, an abundance mentality mindset, a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. That will help us. And then habit five is seek first to understand, then to be understood. And too often in society, both in government and also in many organizations and with many leaders, we go the opposite direction. We want to be understood. We don't. <laughs> take the time to really listen, or when we do listen, we listen not with the intent to really understand, but rather with the intent to reply, to respond. And, you know, so we're kind of just waiting our turn and formulating our reply, but that won't build the kind of trust that's needed to solve our problems. What will is if we seek first to understand and really seek understanding with people. And, and here's a, a great way of 
activating this framework in our current political landscape is, is this, that to understand another person doesn't mean that you necessarily agree with them. In fact, you might completely disagree. So you're not acquiescing and saying, by trying to understand you, I'm agreeing with you. No, you're trying to say, I'm not casting judgment right now. I'm just trying to understand to your satisfaction how you feel and how you view this before I try to tell you how I feel and how I view it. Because if you do that in that sequence, you'll have far more influence with each other. You'll build trust with each other. And maybe, just maybe, you might come up with a solution together. And But understanding precedes that. And people are not striving for that understanding enough. So we need that today. The, your listeners are absolutely right. And then finally, habit six is then to synergize together, to take those differences that you learn about in habit five when you try to understand each other and now to say, how can we take these differences and turn them into strengths by coming up with solutions that are better than what either one of us could do by ourselves? And so we do need this in our governments at all levels. We also, though, need it in our businesses and in our healthcare systems and in our educational institutions and in military, in NGOs, and really every walk of life. And so we're trying to, you know, the, the, the 30th anniversary edition of the Seven Habits book is trying to say, hey, people need to both discover and maybe rediscover mm. these foundational basic habits that will help us become more effective working together. And we've maybe drifted from it too much. We've got to re, we got to go back to blocking and tackling <laughs> the basic habits that will help us work well, first become independent and then become interdependent. And we have to come back to this. And so that's why we're coming out with the 30th anniversary edition is to say these seven habits are actually even more relevant today than they were 30 years ago. You mentioned uh, Think Win-Win and Nicole, who didn't give her last name, but uh, Melissa Thompson, a young man named Pradeep Shetty, all asked about that habit in particular. And Nicole has a coworker, wink, wink, uh, that she needs help with. Well, I'm just teasing Nicole. It is a coworker, not, not Nicole herself. Uh, but she asks, uh, what advice would you give, Stephen, for dealing with someone who only sees one-sided wins in the context of negotiations? How do you begin to move them toward understanding think win-win? Yeah, great question, Nicole, and, and um, also Melissa and Pradeep. I would say this, that it's a, it's a great question because there's so many that come at this kind of with the, with the traditional negotiating posture, transactional, you know, kind of give and take, tit for tat type of thing. And, and um, also from the premise of many cases, you know, scarcity, zero sum, and hey, if you're winning, then I'm winning less. <laughs> and, and, and so, yes, that is a challenge. I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay that. It is real. But I also find this, that sometimes one person can shift the whole environment. It takes one to well, – well, it takes two to practice win-win. It only takes one to start. And if you can come in as that one and say, hey, we can maybe negotiate the traditional way of negotiation where we kind of go back and forth and kind of transactional. And I'm, I know how to do that. I'm not against that if that's the preferred route. But I also would like to explore a possibility if you're open. You know, the best deals and the best negotiations, the best relationships are those in which people can really trust each other mm. and can come up with, with a situation that is truly a win-win. If we have to be partners and deal with each other long-term, then the only sustainable relationship and approach has got, has got to be a win for both of us. So what if we try to say, let's try to seek a win for both of us. And look, I want to win. Of course I do. And I know you want to win. And I want your win as much as I do my own. I know that's different. I know that's not the traditional approach. But are you open to that possibility? And my whole idea would be, again, I'm not going to just give you whatever you want. And you're not going to give me whatever I want. But rather, we're trying to understand each other's interests, not just our positions, and try to listen to each other and then try to come up with solutions that might be a win-win. It might be an approach. We may not achieve it. But maybe we can. And I think by kind of making it safe, opening up the possibility, presenting the idea, and, and then also saying, and I'm willing to go first. I'm willing to kind of to take the risk. I'm willing to really try to listen and understand you first. And then if you practice habit five, they might kind of either not like this <laughs> or give lip service to it. But if you still will practice habit five, which is rather than just playing the tit for tat back and forth transactional game, just say, hey, I, I, I want to understand your viewpoint and 
and then reflect back what you're hearing. And, you know, they might think this is a, a game or this is weird, but if you stay with it, there's a good chance you can influence them. I've seen it happen. I've also seen it not work mm. where, where, you know, I try to go win-win and they're just deeply scripted in the other and they view it as a game. But I've seen it transform some relationships where people say, are you serious about this? Well, I'd be open to that if you are, but, you know, I've got to have a win. And I say, I know, but I got to have a win too. And, and you're authentic. You're real. You, you build trust. You build some understanding. If you can come up with a great solution – on one thing, you might be able to come up with another. And I've seen it just grow and transcend. So, again, I'm practical. It doesn't always work. But <laughs> while it takes two to practice win-win, by definition, it only takes one to start it. And oftentimes, we can be that one by painting the picture and by kind of making it safe and then by leading out and going first. Mm -hmm. And there's a risk to that. But I think there's a risk to not do it, too, because then you're just trapped in traditional negotiation where you often get deals but you don't trust each other after the deal. So the quality of the deal is not as good as maybe a true win-win where you also trust each other. That's worth something maybe taking a risk for. So that would be my advice. And, and uh, it won't always work, but sometimes it will. Mm, I love that. Kim Affleck wrote to us. She wants to know, what one thing would you say is, is out of balance that you'd like to bring back into alignment to more accurately represent what your father originally wanted people to understand? And if I'm reading between the lines, I think what she's saying here, is there a, is there a habit that's been misapplied or misunderstood in, in some cases? Yeah, I would say this, that sometimes habit one, be proactive can be misunderstood, mm. you know, because it's become vernacular in our culture. And sometimes it can be seen as, you know, proactive people are just kind of relentless and pushy, you know, just make it happen, run over people in the process. And, you know, because they're proactive and, and just never say no type of thing. And, and there's an element of that in habit one, be proactive, which is, you know, you take initiative, you take responsibility, but too often, sometimes people have pushed that to the extreme of where be proactive means you're a pushy kind of just run people over all in the name of being proactive. <laughs> and, and, um, you know, so it's all courage and all pushiness and no balancing of consideration and, and the needs of other people. When in fact, be proactive really means that we are responsible for our choices and that in between what happens to us, the stimulus and our response to that stimulus, there is a space mm. where we can choose our response based upon our values as opposed to just reacting impulsively. And that's the big idea behind being proactive is that we are responsible for our choices and for our actions. We can't just point the finger and blame and saying, hey, he made me do it or she made me do it or, you know, he makes me so mad and pointing the finger and blame as if we have no choice in the matter. You know, that's stimulus response, stimulus response, like Pavlov's dog. You know, there's no choice, but there's a space between the stimulus, what happens to us and our response. And in that space is our freedom to choose our response based upon our values as opposed to just react impulsively. So the metaphor is the reactive person is like a can of soda pop. And you, if you shake it up and then you open it, it's just going to squirt out, you know, everywhere. That's reactive, but compare that to a bottle of still water. You shake that and you open that up and it's not going to squirt out because that, the metaphor is that they're proactive and they, they, they choose their response and you know it's not just a reactive, impulsive thing. And so mm. that'd be probably one thing to, to clarify that I think would be really Im important versus kind of the proactive person that's just running people over in the process, <laughs> all in the name of making it happen being, and being proactive. Right. Well, a lot of the questions I received, Stephen, ask about the habits as they might relate to our current uh, crisis, our global pandemic. Uh, Casey uh, Jaycox, Louise Harris, Sherry Griffin, Jillian Hollett, and Tanya Shelburne uh, all ask questions along those lines. Louise uh, put it this way. 30 years ago, the pace of change was, was picking up, but definitely was a lot slower than now. How do we begin with the end in mind when technology society and, and ways of working are changing so fast. She says, I know many business leaders I've talked to since the lockdowns have no idea how to even imagine the end. What would you say to that? Yeah. Uh, again, wonderful question because it's so real. I would say this, that we can apply the, the principle of habit to begin with the end in mind, many levels. And the level that this question is about is saying, how do I apply this to our business and to our, my career and to you know, what's happening in the world? And I agree that it's hard right now 
with so much change and disruption hitting us and also the current kind of pandemic situation that we're in, it is hard to know what the end is and how to get there. And so so in this sense, in the business sense and, and how we're navigating this, you know, it's hard to know exactly what that end looks like. I agree. So step back and kind of ratchet this up to a higher level of saying, okay, well, I can't predict the current environment very well right now. Maybe what I can do is predict more what I want for me in my life, in terms of what's most important to me, in terms of my life, in terms of my relationships, in terms of my family, in terms of my mm. my career at large. What do I value? What matters to me? And my father talked about the idea of you're at your 80th birthday celebration. <laughs> so you're now 80 years old and, and, um, and you have people there from all walks of life, from business. And, and again, you can't predict what's happening in business right now and organizational life because of all that's going on. But you still have a leader from business that is there at your 80th birthday, as well as someone from your family, as well as someone from, say, your community or your neighborhood, as well as maybe someone from your church, if you belong to a church or from um, a not-for-profit or some you know volunteer organization you're a part of. And those people are going to give a tribute, a speech about you. <laughs> what would you want them to say about you? <laughs> so yeah, I can't predict what's going to happen with COVID-19 and, and you know all this disruption and change. What I do care about though is in my professional work, what do I want to have been known for? That I, you know, that I was that I was a person of integrity, that I was a person of fairness, that I was a, a person that sought to contribute and to add value and to, to that cared about other people and or whatever it might be. What would you want people to say about you? What would you want your family to say about you? What would you want your neighborhood or your community or your church or your volunteer organization, the person there to, to say about you? Because that's describing the most important things to you, your end in mind for you as a person. Mm. or for your family as a family. And, you know, so so I would say, again, focus on what you can control. You can't control the environment, but you can try to control and predict the kind of person you become in any and all environments, even when there's all kinds of change and disruption happening. That's what you're striving for. So just ratchet it up to the end in mind that's most important to you. My father talked about create a personal mission statement for yourself, for your mm. life. You know, just like a company might create an organizational mission statement. What if you had a personal mission statement? What if you created a family mission statement together with your family about what the first things in your family are, the most important things? And so you can apply this at many levels. So mm. that's one that you we could all say, hey, who am I? What am I about? I'll apply, begin with the end of mind to me as a person. And then you're still in a business setting. You do the best you can. It may not be that I've created a strategic plan that is going to be really valuable, a year from now when everything is changing, but I can say, here's the kind of business or company I'm trying to create to add value in these ways, recognizing that the world is changing around me really fast. So I can't predict the outcomes, but I can say I want to be a part of or build this kind of organization that, you know, broadly speaking versus narrowly speaking. So mm. I think you have to kind of broaden the viewpoint to make sense of this today. Mm. Well said. Related to family, Alex Osmond and Jeff Fusen ask about habits as they relate to fatherhood specifically. And Jeff writes that uh, your dad shared at some point about his writing process and mentioned enjoying time at the beach with your family uh, for most of the day while he would rise early to write. And this may have been on an extended writing retreat, Jeff admits, and, and not normal life. But he gave Jeff a dream of, of a rhythm of meaningful work merged with family. That's his vision for life balance. In your estimation, Stephen, how is your dad able to pull that off? What could Jeff learn from from your dad that would help him develop that kind of, of rhythm and balance? Yes. Um, I think my father was pretty amazing at this, at pulling it off um, <laughs> because, because uh, he had a, you know, very successful professional life, um, obviously with seven habits and, and other works and in his speaking and very influential. But you know what? 
he had an equally successful kind of family life. And we, I, I know that because I'm a son and I, <laughs> I grew up in this and I, I felt it. And, and the relationship my dad had with my mom and with each of us children. And we have nine kids. So this was not easy, you know. And, and, yet, and, and yet he was a great uncle to a lot of nieces and nephews and, and a, a great brother to his brother and his sisters. And so he had a great family life. He, he served in his church. He, he did things that were important to him in volunteer ways. And mm. he was a member of the community and and just you know so he was able to balance it well now was any of this easy no and and he struggled and he, he tried but he really was able to pull it off and i think the reason he was able to was because he tried he really tried hard to live these seven habits hmm. he wasn't perfect at it in fact he was asked one time do you live the seven habits and he said about 80 percent of the time <laughs> <laughs> in other words most of the time you know but i fall short too but i just get back on track and so he did a good job of habit seven, which is sharpen the saw. The whole idea of you know never be too busy sawing to take time to sharpen the saw. Mm-hmm. He would focus on sharpening the saw in all four dimensions. The physical, that's the body. The social, emotional, that's the heart, that's relationships. The mental, intellectual, that's your mind and that's you know your talents and your skills and, and your expertise and your the work that you do professionally. And then the spiritual, which is all about kind of contribution and meaning, and purpose, and value, and he focused on kind of sharpening the saw in all four of those dimensions, and that made him really effective with people. He also kind of saw life as an integrated piece, so rather than compartmentalizing of, I got my professional work, and then my family work, and such, he integrated it, and I remember as a kid growing up, he'd show me his calendar and say, hey, I'm going on all these trips that are set up to do presentations, which trips do you kids want to go on? And I'm hmm. going to take each of you on a, on a trip of your choosing. Hmm. You know, and I remember choosing, I, I want to go to Orlando because I want to go to Disney World. <laughs> and he had a, a speech in Orlando. And, and so he'd organize it and he'd give a speech, but then he stayed an extra day and we went to you know, Disney World together. And, and they did this with all nine of us. And, and, hmm. uh, and so he was doing his professional work and he was also doing his family work. And it's not perfect balance because balance is so hard to achieve. We're all out of balance. Hmm. But he achieved harmony. He, he there, there was integration. And I'll tell you what, my dad was gone a lot, and yet it didn't feel like it. And and he, and he put first things first. He always would schedule in advance the important family things. He was able to find that rhythm, but he had to work at it. Hmm. It did not just happen. And there were seasons of imbalance where, you know, you know when he had a book deadline and he'd just go really hard and – and you might not see him quite as much during that because that was a reality. So, you know, he's a real person. He struggled like the rest of us, but he found a way to kind of integrate all areas of life so that rather than seeing it life in, in compartments, he saw it as one indivisible whole and tried to find ways to create synergy among the different dimensions and aspects of his life, you know, with his work, with his family, with his community and contributions. But it is a big challenge and, and he struggled as well. But I think he, he, he found some good patterns that really helped him. And I think I've shared some of the ways. The integration is the main one. When I, when I started the show uh, around six and a half years ago, it was important to me for people to understand that, uh, that I want folks not just reading more books, but taking what they're learning and actually applying it and, and putting it into action. And uh, Larry Bloomquist asks a question along those lines. He starts by admitting to sometimes spending more time reading and learning and less time taking action. How do you, Stephen, personally filter through all that's out there and focus on what's important for your impact and influence and then act on what you've learned? Yes, I think this is a great question because we are overwhelmed with information. <laughs> and again, this is a big part of what you're doing, Jeff, with uh, Read Delete because there's a lot out there. But the real power of Read Delete and of kind of taking in all that's out there is in the application of it, the mm. implementation of it. And and my father, this did not originate with him, but he would often use an expression, to know and not to do is not to know. In other words, so if we learn something, that's nice, but if we don't implement it, apply it, then we don't really know it and learn it. And so I think that maybe a good way to think about this is, and I try to do this myself, and again, I'm also overwhelmed sometimes with information and with a lot of knowledge. So I try to have some type of filter around the different roles in my life, Mm. uh, my professional role, my family role. So that I have a, I achieve some level of harmony and balance of I'm not just trying to learn 
only professionally, but I'm trying to also learn how to be a better father and how to be a better husband. And, you know, and, and, and I also, I'm trying to learn how to be a contributor in, in society and community as well as my professional work. And that's kind of the lens through which I look at maybe a good harmony of, of uh, learning in lots of different areas. And I'm sure, you know, in the work that you do with read to lead, you're, you're encouraging people to, to not just look at narrow learning in their mm. technical field. That's important. Right. But sometimes having context and perspective and seeing how that fits in life where to learn other people's fields and, mm. you know, is also valuable. So I try to get a holistic sense. I know my father did, but then the second thing I think is I try to, Whenever I finish a book, rather than just going on to the next book, I try to take a little bit of time and saying, what were the big ideas and the main points I got out of this book that the author wanted me to get out? And how might I implement and apply just one or two key ideas from this book mm. so that I'm trying to put into action what I've learned. I'm trying to, to, to know and to do and not just to know. And I learned this, that if I try to apply everything, because usually there's a lot of ideas in a book, right? Mm. If I try to do too much, then I tend to almost do nothing. <laughs> so it's almost counterintuitive. And then I might, I might have this knowledge, but I haven't, I'm not applying it. So instead, I try to say one or two things. And, and then I try to just implement those one or two things. And then I find this, that if I have success in implementing one or two things, it often encourages me to go back to that book and say, wow, this really worked. <laughs> What's another thing I might try on this? And then another, and then I find, you know, some works are really even more valuable than others where it just draws me in because it's so practical and actionable and I, and I can really apply it. And so I've learned less is more. And, <laughs> and, um, and, and so to, to learn and then to apply at least one thing, sometimes two, but not 20. <laughs> if it's 20, I won't do any. Mm. If it's one or two, I'll, I'll do it. And, and so I try to do that. And that might be an idea, but I'm sure that all of our listeners might have a different approach. But I think the, the question is great because we're overwhelmed with information and with knowledge. What we want really is learning and application and understanding. And that takes, you know, applying it. Hmm. And, and that's the key way that we really learn. I mentioned earlier that, and it's no surprise, millions of people have read your father's uh, book. And I think it's safe to say that uh, many of them have read it multiple times. And uh, Renee Vider is one of those. And she says uh, she gleans something new just about every time she reads it. Do you feel you've read it enough, is her question, or familiarized yourself enough with the habits to have finally conquered them? Or are you still learning new ways of applying them and living them too? I'm learning new ways of applying and living them all the time. It's, it's like a, a spiral. It just keeps going up. And so there's so many different levels and dimensions to it. You can apply it on so many different ways. It is a continuous spiral. And I'll tell you what, as I mentioned also, habits four, five, and six, that mm. public victory, think win-win, seek first to understand it and be understood, synergize. They were the same three, you know, same public victory habits mm. 30 years ago. And they're more relevant today in a world in which we are often doing very little of that. And we're not, you know, synergizing. We're instead in conflict and in, you know, at best we get compromise and not synergy where one plus one equals three or more. There's so many different levels and layers. And what I think our, our readers and, and listeners will love about this updated, you know, 30th edition of The Seven Habits is that you get the original Seven Habits in its full form. But then after each chapter, my brother, Sean, who has taken the seven habits and applied it to teenagers, you know, seven, he wrote seven habits of highly effective teens mm. and also applied it to children, seven habits of happy kids. And he's also worked a lot with adults and with, with educators, with uh, leaders in schools. He gives fresh insights at the end of each chapter mm. of exactly what Renee is talking about. New insights, new ways of applying and in implementing these principles that are fresh, that are relevant, that are tied to kind of the challenges we're facing today. It's also some 
behind the scenes thinking of my father and, and stuff around different things. And, and so it's really fresh and it's relevant. And it kind of just shows you that this is an ongoing process, an upward spiral of uh, kind of going to new and different levels of application and understanding. And, and it really makes the seven habits just come alive in our new world. Because I think the seven habits is not 30 years old, but rather 30 years young. Mm. And it's more relevant today than it was 30 years ago. I love it. You, you answered a couple of my questions in that one response. I was also going to ask you about what uh, makes the new edition new, and you covered that. Yeah. So, so thank you for that. Uh, Mark Connold, or Connold uh, wants to know about a book he doesn't hear much about anymore, but had a profound impact on him. And that is a book called The Eighth Habit, From Effectiveness to Greatness. Yes, it, it's a wonderful book. It's still out there. It still sells and, and does well. And, you know, The Seven Habits was a holistic framework, and it was complete. And my father didn't feel a need to kind of mm. alter or change it. But he did later come up with this book, The Eighth Habit. And The Eighth Habit was not saying, hey, I forgot a habit, <laughs> and I missed it on The Seven Habits, and so here it is. But rather, The Eighth Habit was saying, take The Seven Habits in their whole – they help a person move from dependence to independence to interdependence and have that private victory and the public victory and to renew yourself around it, which is habit seven, sharpen the saw. Now, what if you now move into a leadership dimension in your life? And the eighth habit was this. Find your voice, which is what the seven habits does, and inspire others to find theirs. It's now about saying, move into the role of leadership mm. where you inspire others to find it in themselves and, and um, help others see it. And my father defined leadership this way. He said, leadership is communicating people's worth and potential so clearly that they're inspired to see it in themselves, mm. that they come to see it in themselves. So you're so good at affirming people, at seeing their worth and potential, at communicating their worth and potential so clearly to them they come to see it in themselves. And that was the idea behind the eighth habit is, is now you're moving into a leadership dimension and domain. Apart from just being effective, it's now moving towards greatness of inspiring others and helping people see the greatness inside of themselves. Mm. And so, you know, that's a contribution that's kind of different in kind. So my, my father saw this as another dimension beyond the original seven habits. It builds upon it and now takes it to a leadership dimension of helping people find their voice and that you're a catalyst as a leader to help inspire that and to help bring it about. So it's a wonderful book that is still doing well out there. The eighth habit is like... Um, algebra the seven habits is basic math so you know it's foundational for all of us everyone needs it and those that get good at basic math one of them now go into algebra mm. or, or calculus you know you know you, you but the seven habits is for everyone and this is kind of a deeper application like mark i love the eighth habit as well i think it's a profound kind of follow on to the seven habits mm. well, i'll finish with this question i'm a big fan of your book the speed of trust as well as uh, your brother sean's book the four disciplines of execution mary putman writes that she loves the speed of trust she says i'd love to know anything you've learned since writing it and how to achieve trust when so much business development is done virtually so much of that is done online especially now during the pandemic what would you say to that Right. Great question, Mary. And I would say this, that especially now during a time of pandemic, it actually puts an even greater premium on the importance of trust. Trust is the new currency of our world today. Mm. It makes our world go around. And it's the greatest currency that a person has, that a leader has, is the trust that people have in them. So it's always mattered, but never more so than during times of crisis and never more so than in a virtual setting where you might not be as close and as proximate. And so, so people really are kind of saying, can I trust this person? You know, and, and, and you want to build that trust. And so here's a couple of tips. In my book, The Speed of Trust, I, I, I try to do two things. First, I try to make a case that trust is the one thing that changes everything, that it truly is our new currency, and that if we get good at trust as a leader, we build trust in relationships, on teams and cultures, it will impact everything else that we're trying to do. 
We can do it better. We can do it faster. We can do it with less cost. We can innovate and create and engage people far better, build teams. So trust is the one thing that changes everything. That's kind of the why. And then I focus on the how, which is this, that trust, the second thing, trust is learnable. It is a skill and a competency. So here's a couple of key things that Mary and all of us can do. We can look in the mirror and start with ourselves. That's the first thing. Focus on your own credibility. You know, do I trust myself? Self-trust. Am I a person that others can trust? Would it be smart to trust me because I'm a person of character and of competence? So am I credible, my character, my competence? And I look, at, I look in the mirror. I start with myself. Trustworthiness precedes trust. I've got to be trustworthy. I call that credibility. And that's the starting point. And the tendency for most of us is that we kind of look at everybody else and saying, as soon as he changes, or as soon as they change or improve, then I can trust them. And I'm saying, no, look in the mirror and say, what can I do? to become more credible and build my own trustworthiness so that I can build trust with others. Then the second thing is now I want to interact and behave in ways that build trust. So I, I start by being trustworthy. I now interact with other people in ways that build the trust. Like, for example, I listen first to them and I make and keep commitments to them and I clarify expectations and I talk straight versus, you know, spinning or twisting or lying, you know, and I, and I create transparency. I'm open. I'm authentic. I'm real versus kind of having hidden agendas. Hmm. I practice accountability. I own things, take responsibility versus finger pointing, blaming. You know, all these are behaviors that build trust. And in the speed of trust, I named 13 behaviors of high trust leaders. And I've named six or seven already. You know, talk straight, create transparency, clarify expectations, listen first, keep commitments. But I'll give you a, a key one. This is a third step. So I, I, I'm saying first, look in the mirror. Start with yourself, your credibility, your trustworthiness. Second, behave in ways that build trust. You know, you, you, you behave your way out of trust and you behave your way back into trust. Mm. My father would often say, you can't talk yourself out of a problem that you behaved yourself into. <laughs> We've got to behave our way out. And the same with trust. If we lost people's trust, we can't talk our way out of it. The only way out is to behave our way out of it. And that will take some time. And so I identified the highest leverage behaviors to help leaders build trust. There's 13 of them. And the one I want to mention is my last point. My third point is to extend trust. Mm. So not only do we as a person have to be trustworthy, we also need to be trusting because when you give trust, people will receive it and they return it. When you withhold it, they tend to withhold it. And you could have two trustworthy people working together and yet no trust between them if neither person is willing to extend trust to the other. So yes, we need to be trustworthy. That's credibility. We start there, but it's not enough. We also need to be trusting. Now look, I'm not saying go out and blindly trust everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, a blind trust, you know, because not everyone can be trusted and that's not smart in today's world. Mm. I'm saying be smart about it. Use good judgment and always have clear expectations and accountability around the trust. You, you kind of build an agreement together around here's our expectations, here's accountability. But I'm challenging all of us to find the appropriate ways to smartly be able to extend more trust to each other, to trust people more again, in smart ways, because that helps create it and it helps inspire people and brings out the best in them. They rise to the occasion, they perform better. Now look, a few might abuse it, take advantage, but the vast majority will be inspired by it. So use good judgment, be smart because you can't, you know, trust too much in a setting that will lose the whole firm or you can't bet the farm and, you know, go too far, too much, too soon. <laughs> we need not only more trustworthiness. We need more extension of trust. We need to be trusting leaders. And that's part of habits four, five, and six. To build that kind of synergy, we have to be able to trust people and extend mm. trust to them, bring out the best in them. And so those are three things you can do as a leader. First, look in the mirror, start with yourself, your own credibility. Second, behave in ways that build the trust so that you build it intentionally, deliberately. And third, get especially good at extending trust to other people in a smart way because you'll see it come back to you. You'll build it. It'll become a virtuous upward spiral. 
Trust is contagious, just like distrust is. And we need more trust in our world, not less. Mm. So those are three practical steps that people can do to build trust as a leader. Well, what a, a, a treat this has been and a highlight of the six and a half year journey, certainly of the Read to Lead podcast. Stephen M. R. Covey is the author of the New York Times and, and number one Wall Street Journal bestselling Speed of Trust uh, and a co-author of the number one Amazon bestseller Smart Trust. His brother, Sean, wrote The Four Disciplines of Execution, awesome book, and also added additional insights to the book that we spent much of our time talking about today written by Stephen's late father, Stephen R. Covey. That book, of course, called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Stephen M. R. Covey, thank you so much for your time today and sharing of it so generously on the Read to Lead podcast. It means a lot. Oh, absolutely. You are welcome, Jeff. Thank you for hosting me. I've loved being on this, appreciated all these wonderful questions from our listeners. And I really admire you, Jeff, and the contribution you are making to leaders all over the world with Read to Lead and the work that you're doing, because that helps not only build trust, it helps people learn, improve, get better, lead. And we need more leadership as well as more trust in our world. You're a catalyst to help doing that. So thank you for this opportunity. Even if you've read the original, I encourage you to pick up this 30th anniversary edition. A lot of great additional insights that make it well worth the purchase. Think, too, about who you know that would benefit from reading this book for the first time. What an honor to be the person responsible for introducing them to this fantastic work. Find out more about it and my conversation with Stephen at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 319 for episode 319. And a big thank you to you if you were one of those who submitted one of the questions we included. Again, dozens of questions submitted, and I tried to include as many as I could and combine questions uh, where possible. Hopefully, you heard your name mentioned. And how cool was it that Stephen did such a good job of remembering those names himself and mentioning them again later in the conversation? I was very, very impressed with his ability to do that. And as always, if you have questions, comments, suggestions, or feedback from me in regard to the podcast, uh, please send that to me directly, Jeff, at readtoleadpodcast.com. And if you're not already subscribed to the podcast, be sure to click the subscribe button inside the app you're listening to the podcast through right now. That way you get notified when future episodes are released, which is, by the way, every Tuesday morning. Next time, we'll be chatting with Sherry Deutschman. She's author of a book called Lunch with Lucy and founder of a company called Letter Logic, which she launched after cashing in her 401k and grew to a $40 million business. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Well, that's it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.